Hello and welcome back to Pan Am, a podcast about Paris, the people who've lived here, the events that have taken place and the traces they've left behind. Today, we are on the traces of a killer who struck indiscriminately and was a master of disguise and left survivors forever scarred. It's none other than the great imitator, the pox, better known as syphilis. To find out more, I went to discover with my best friend Sarah one sunny afternoon at one of Paris's most discreet museums and learn more about this infamous disease that touched kings and paupers, sex workers and poets alike. So come with me as we track down the truly gruesome marks left on Paris and Parisians. Just on a side note, this episode is going to be about syphilis, which is a sexually transmitted disease. So if that's not for you or people listening with you, then do skip or listen at another time. But be aware that we will be discussing sex and consider yourself warned. Right, let's go. Colonel Fabien... Tucked away in a hidden part of the St. Louis Hospital in the 10th arrondissement and by appointment only, you can visit the Skin Disease Museum, Le Musée du Moulage. It is not for the faint-hearted and there's even an age limit. You must be at least 12 to enter. I personally enjoyed every minute of it and found it truly fascinating, as did Sarah, but it was designed originally as a teaching tool for doctors so there is no detail or body part left out. It truly lifts the petticoats, drops the trousers and spreads the cheeks of 19th century Paris. Now, I didn't take any photos as they asked us not to and of course we respected their rules, though the museum does have a little video that gives you a glimpse inside, so I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Instead, let me paint a picture for you with words, if I can. The museum is both a place to learn by observation and there are also chairs set up so they obviously do conferences there which I would find personally very distracting. Anyway, it's all contained in one large room with very high ceilings and tall wooden framed cabinets, glass cabinets line the walls which stretch almost up to the ceiling. Inside, you'll find incredibly realistic wax models which have been painted for extra realism and they display a vast array of separating sores of the unfortunately afflicted person. And although it's not a big museum, they have really packed it in. There are nearly 5,000 models in total. There is a whole range of issues from something as simple as psoriasis to elephantitis and, of course, a lot of syphilis. Handwritten labels occasionally give you a glimpse into the lives of the people, their age and occupation, as well as the disease. So, for example, Marie, 21, seamstress, and so forth. But while skin diseases and, of course, syphilis does not discriminate, the people who agreed to sit for castings were generally the working class, the poor exchanging their time and privacy for treatment. Now, because the room is so high, there is a little narrow staircase that takes you upstairs to a gallery that surrounds the room. And likewise, it has its own glass cabinets, each one full with the most excruciating looking ailments. Although there's lots of private parts on display, there are also hands, noses, faces, legs, ears, toes. I mean, everything. And it's incredibly personal and intimate looking at these models which were taken with care, painted, and even sometimes eyelashes or eyebrows were added where needed. You're really looking back in time at the person who suffered and, 
it did genuinely look very, very painful. While we were there looking round, there was another couple who were visiting, as well as two white-coated doctors who were also examining some specimens. And you'd think that this place was surely just a curiosity, um, now that, thankfully, penicillin, vaccinations, antibiotics treat the majority of these uh, diseases and ailments. But it does mean, in some ways, the doctors never really get to see how they develop. So maybe it is still useful for doctors to come here and see what would happen if you left these untreated. The collection was created in 1867 by a Dr Lallier, who was a doctor at the Hospital Saint-Louis, which still has an important dermatology department. He asked artist Jules Beretta, who usually made modelled fruit in paper mache, to make casts of people suffering from skin diseases. Um, I wonder how that conversation went. And a rather disturbing bust of the great modeller himself watches over his works. He just always seems to follow you around the room with this sort of beady expression. Anyway, the building itself was inaugurated on the 5th of August 1889, the opening day of the first International Dermatology Congress organised at the Musée du Moulage as part of the Universal Exhibition. But syphilis's history, needless to say, is of course much longer. And while we often associate it with madness and genius of the late 19th century, particularly in France, indeed in her book Pox, Genius, Madness and Mystery of Syphilis, Deborah Hayden writes that, quote, at the end of the 19th century, syphologist Albert Fournier estimated that 15% of the population of Paris was infected with syphilis, end quote. The population at the end of the 19th century was more or less what it is today, around 2 million. So that is around 300,000 people with syphilis. With no cure on the horizon, as penicillin would not be used to treat syphilis until 1943. So that is an absolutely enormous amount of people. I mean, it just feels that everyone, someone, you must have known someone that had syphilis. There were some cures, although they were quite deadly. But where did syphilis come from? How did it all begin? That is actually quite a tricky question to answer. And there is still quite a lot of debate about where syphilis came from and how it all began. One theory is that Christopher Columbus, um, that paragon of humanity, when he went on his voyage to uh, kill and plunder, oh, did, oh, or what should I say, discover, um along with his European crew, brought with them death and disease, which decimated the native people of America. They brought with them things like flu and smallpox, measles, tetanus, typhus, typhoid, pneumonia, whooping cough and dysentery. Anyone that was survived was often brutally killed with more traditional methods like guns and knives or simply enslaved. But, and like I said, there is still some debate it seems that the unfortunate people of this land may have been able to lob just one lethal grenade at these egregious conquistadors, and that was syphilis. And the reason that they think it might have come from the Americas was because an outbreak of syphilis coincided with the return of Columbus to Europe in 1493. Basically, the French went to war with the Italians and they hired lots of mercenaries and some of them were from Columbus's ships. And there was this huge outbreak of syphilis. And by all accounts, it was much more virulent uh, than later strains, which can be the case with the first contact. It would go on to spread with the help of war and ignorance within a decade all across the countries of Europe. 
1512, it was in China, and soon it covered the world. Like with all things unwanted, people blamed each other because being a sexually transmitted disease, it was considered shameful and dirty. And just by going on the names alone, you can tell how people get along. So in Russia, it was the Polish sickness, the Poles blamed the Germans, and the Germans blamed the Spanish, calling it the Spanish itch. Muslims blamed Christians, and Christians blamed Muslims. An alternative idea was that syphilis was present in Europe and somehow mutated. Um... But we just don't know. But if you want to know how it went from being the Polish disease, the Muslim plague, the French disease, the great pox, and became known as syphilis, well, this is all down to an Italian physician and poet, Girolamo Fracastoro. Sorry for that pronunciation, Italian speakers. In 1530, he wrote a poem in whereby a shepherd, who is called syphilis, blames and insults the sun god for the drought that leads to the demise of his flock. And in return, the angry god punishes him with this horrific disease, and voila, the name stuck. Keeping with the theme of gods, syphilis is a venereal disease, although we don't usually use this term anymore, apparently. But that word comes from Venus, or, as they would joke in the 19th century, if you spent a night with Venus, you would spend a lifetime with Mercury. More of this later as we get into cures, or at least treatments for syphilis, one of which was mercury. Just a note on the idea of venereal disease, that it comes from Venus or women, tells us a lot about how people attributed blame. Regardless of where it comes from, what does it do? Let's get into it. Syphilis is a sexually transmitted disease, which people realised pretty quickly. It is not a virus, it is a bacterium, more specifically a spirochete, which just means that if you were to look at it under a microscope, it's got a corkscrew shape. Another spirochete is Lyme's disease. Now, this bacterium that causes it is transmitted by skin-on-skin -skin contact. The bacteria is able to corkscrew its way through tiny gaps or cuts in the skin, and this most often happens during sex. It can also be passed congenitally through the placenta from mother to infant or even during birth. Once it penetrates the skin, it makes its way into your bloodstream and then travels around your body and can invade any organ, even the brain and the nervous system, and cause inflammation. So what are the actual symptoms of syphilis? Well, for this, I relied on various readings, but I listened to the very excellent podcast, This Podcast Will Kill You, episode 36. So go ahead and give that a listen if you are interested to know more. But essentially, there are three main phases of the disease, primary, secondary and tertiary. It can also have a latent phase, which means you're infected but have no symptoms. And this usually happens between the secondary and tertiary phases and can last from weeks to years. So let's start at the beginning. You've been infected. The incubation is around three weeks. So once you're infected, three weeks later, you'll develop a painless chancre. This is a sort of ulcer. There are some strains of the disease where it can be painful in the beginning, but for the most part, it's not. Now, this is problematic, as it can and often did mean that people had no idea they'd been infected. Because even though the chancre, once healed, would often leave a scar, if it was hidden in some part of your body, like on your cervix, you might never know it had been there. 
The next stage is secondary syphilis, and this happens around four to ten weeks. So this can present in so, so, so many different ways as the bacterium can invade all parts of your body. And this is why syphilis is sometimes called the great imitator, because if you don't know you're infected, you might think you are suffering from any number of different diseases. You know, you might be having problems with your eyes or your kidney or your liver, and it was often misdiagnosed. There are some classic symptoms of syphilis, including a rash, which you can get on the palms of your hand, on the soles on your feet, which is pretty unusual. Once this phase is over, people who might realise they'd had syphilis think that it's done. And in the 19th century, it was almost rite of passage amongst young men who would beat the pox. But in reality, it is now often entered the latent stage, in which you're not particularly infectious and don't appear to have any particular symptoms. But under the surface, the disease is burrowing deeper into your body. And this can last as little as a few weeks or as long as 30 years. The final stage is the tertiary phase. Like I said, this might not happen for some time. And you might also get to this point of tertiary syphilis and still not know you were infected with syphilis because the secondary stage, you thought it was something else. But here you are. It's the final stage. And here there are also a few different options, manifestations of the disease. They're all pretty gruesome. So let's look at them. You could have neurosyphilis, which is when it affects your brain. Uh, this is often associated with the genius and madness. It can cause moments of brilliance and creativity, delusions of grandeur, along with depression and suicidal feelings, lethargy and seizures. This neurosyphilis ultimately leads to dementia, memory loss, personality change, physical symptoms like tremors and seizures, muscle deterioration and ultimately complete paralysis uh, and death. Lots of great artists and thinkers have been retroactively diagnosed with this strain of syphilis, but I don't really feel there's much point in getting into who might have had it or not now. The next uh, type of syphilis is um, one that affects your nervous system, and this is called tabis dorsalis. Tabis means to waste, and dorsalis is the back. So this is the wasting of your spinal cord. So instead of your brain wasting away, it's your back. You start losing the nerves that are key for touch. So you lose the vibration senses and this proprioception. So that means knowing where your body is in relation to your body, which is key for coordination. So, I mean, imagine trying to have a drink where you don't know where your hand is in relation to your mouth. People that have this type of syphilis also um, find things, everyday tasks, very difficult, like walking, um, and you lose your coordination and reflexes. And so you might see people walking in very peculiar, awkward ways, uh, which resulted in um, their joints being come, becoming worn down or damaged. And this was often called Charcot's joint after Charcot, the famous French doctor, who we're probably going to maybe do an episode on another time because he's fascinating. Something else which, we is, which can happen as well are gummers. Um, and this is something that I already had noticed about syphilis. I didn't realise there were so many different options, but gummers... This is a sort of blister or growth which happens when syphilis gets into your connective tissue and destroys the tissue around it. So 
they seem to favour particular areas like the nose and this is where you see people having their nose eaten off and having holes where their nose used to be but there are other places that this can happen like on your forehead and your back. Cardiovascular syphilis is obviously affecting your heart. This is much more discreet than the others, but by far the most deadly. You're fine one minute uh, and then you just drop down dead. Essentially, your aorta, which is the large artery from your heart, becomes inflamed, dilated and ruptures and you die. Lastly, there is congenital syphilis. Which, if you think syphilis is bad for adults, it is devastating for a developing fetus. It results either in children being stillborn or if they are born alive, they might have a thin skull, badly formed teeth, deformed noses. It can result in deafness and blindness and all sorts of other problems. So how is syphilis treated? Well, thankfully today, penicillin. It is still, thankfully, the most effective treatment of, against syphilis and, by all accounts, not showing any resistance to it. So hurrah for penicillin. But like I said, this was not brought out to World War II. Um, and so before that, there were lots of killer cures that people tried. By far the most common was mercury, which itself causes rashes, hair loss, teeth loss, long-term dementia and kidney failure. So not a great cure. Um, there were various methods of using mercury to try and cure people, including lotions, mercury pills, and even a sort of mercury fumigation where you would be standing over a pot and they would fumigate you with mercury. And this went on to the 20th century. Did it help, you may wonder? Maybe. If you used it exactly at the right time, right at the beginning when that first chanka came out, it could have killed it off. But you had a very, very small window. And so sometimes people would use the mercury, the syphilis would go into its latent phase and they would think it had been cured, but it hadn't. Later in the 20th century, they developed silversan, which was another cure, which did seem to work, but it was arsenic-based and the side effects were absolutely terrible. You needed a course of this treatment and often people would only use the first course and because the side effects were so awful, they'd stop using it and the syphilis would return. So not that great. Um, and of course, when all else fails, a great option was blaming people, just blaming people. Earlier we saw people blaming the Polish or the Russians or, you know, whoever. But instead of just the Polish or the Russians or whoever your neighbour or enemy was, you could just blame women and they were most often blamed, especially if they were poor or vulnerable or of low, please hear the inverted commas in my voice, morals. So that was essentially sex workers. There was a lot of shame associated with the disease and that meant that it was often misdiagnosed. And of course, if you were wealthy or moral or married and had caught syphilis from your unfaithful husband, it was more likely that it would be misdiagnosed. Men were very rarely blamed, even though obviously they had their part to play. I listened to another podcast called Betwixt the Sheets, which deals with syphilis, and it was really good. So give that one a listen as well. And they were talking about some of the treatments or attempts that they made in the UK to control syphilis, which essentially resulted in capturing women, again, vulnerable women, and imprisoning them or putting them against their will in hospitals. 
I've not actually found examples of what happened in France or in Paris, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was very, very similar. I will attempt to continue researching this subject. If I find out, I will update you. Anyway, um, luckily today, there, like I said, there is a cure. So if you think you might have syphilis, go and get yourself tested. There's no shame at all. And you definitely don't want to lose your nose or your mind. I'd like to end this podcast with a quote from a, a writer, Alphonse Daudet. Now, Alphonse definitely had syphilis. And he wrote a book about his experience of living with syphilis called La Doulou. And it was translated by Julian Barnes um, very recently. And he's called this In the Land of Pain because Dode really talks about living day to day with the pain of syphilis and just the suffering. So here's a quote to leave you with. My poor carcass is hollowed out. Voided by anemia. Pain echoes as a voice echoes in a house without furniture or curtains. There are days, long days, when the only part of me that's alive is my pain. Thank you for listening. Take care. Bye.